Taking Up Space is proudly supported by Cold Comfort, the ice cream of champions. Handcrafted with local, organic, fair trade, and recyclable ingredients right in the heart of Victoria. Vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and sugar-free options are available. Stop by the small, independent ice cream company with a conscience. Visit them online at www.coldcomfort.ca. Hello! You're listening to Taking Up Space, a program highlighting conversations on feminism from an intersectional lens. And I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. Thank you all for being here today on this episode of Gender, Identity, and Sexuality. We have on our panel today, Kingsley Strudwick, Emma Antoine, and Morgan Henderson. Let's get acquainted with the group. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Gender, Identity, and Sexuality. We have on our panel today, Kingsley Strudwick. He was the founder of Ambit Gender Diversity Consulting, a company that works with organizations of any size to ensure that services and work environments are accessible, affirming, and dignified for trans, non-binary, and two-spirit people. How are you doing today, Kingsley? Doing really good. And next we have Emma Antoine, who has been with the Native Youth Sexual Health Network for eight years, but only recently moved to the Kwangan-speaking territories. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, yeah. And last but not least, we have Morgan Henderson, who is an openly asexual, recently graduated student from UVic, who has graduated with a degree in geography and economics and is currently interested in urban design and development and roller derby. <laughs> so how are you doing, Morgan? Doing really excellent. Happy to be here. So this show is about intersectionality and how everyone's experiences under these large umbrella topics are so different based solely on how the world perceives us. So before we get into the uh, nitty-gritty details of sexual identity and gender, I was wondering, how has your understanding of gender identity and sexuality been shaped by your personal experiences? Emma, you start us off. So Ani, hey, hey, sego. Emma Indishnakaz, Nkimakandodam. So I'm Emma, Nishnabe from Charbot Lake, which is all the way back in Ontario. I've only just come to this West Coast about a couple months ago, so I'm super still figuring out how to be a good guest on these lands. I've worked with Native Youth Sexual Health Network for many, many years now, and a lot of what we talk about with being Indigenous is the roles that our nations and our cultural understandings play in knowing who we are. So it was really important that I placed myself and placed where I come from, both because in my teachings, now you know who to hold me accountable to. So now if I'm saying something that's not in an Anishinaabe way, you can drag me back to my elders uh, back in Charbot Lake and I have to be accountable to them. But also because what I know of being two-spirit and what I know of being trans is sourced from these teachings. And I had the honor to be to grow and be raised by a lot of two-spirit community in Toronto as well. So that's also a source for both accountability and my teachings in terms of if you're looking at what's informed me to be who I am today and to do the work that I do today. So I think that's a very like quick way to say, to summarize. Thank you for sharing. Kingsley. Yeah, my whole life I've identified within masculinity. And of course, as a kid, I was just being a kid, you know, and I um, kind of always thought that 
everyone else didn't get the memo. It's like, oh, you don't have to do all this gender stuff. Like everybody else didn't quite get it yet and I'm the one who gets it. So I, I feel actually very lucky that that was my interpretation of my own experience. Cause I know for a lot of folks it can be more of like a shame connotation associated with being different or being outside of whatever the, the dominant norm is. And yeah, I kind of, uh, as with many of us probably discovered uh, Ani DeFranco uh, <laughs> in my mid teens and was, yeah, introduced to that kind of brand of, of feminism, if you want to call it that. And um, that was pretty formative in finding my way into analyses of power. Um, and I think I located my work initially in my own experience, so around um, queerness of orientation and of gender, but then from there was able to kind of extrapolate that to other power imbalances in the world. Thank you. I guess my understanding of gender and sexuality was super basic for a very long time. And that wasn't particularly challenged for quite a while since no one that I knew for quite a while had any sort of interesting view on gender or sexuality for a very long time. I grew up in an extremely like heteronormative uh, experience. And I only sort of noticed, I guess, that I wasn't having the same experience as other people in like high school, give or take. And it was difficult for me to sort of put a word on that because yeah, asexuality isn't all that common, or at least it wasn't all that talked about um, in my high school. You know, you had you had your gay kids, you had your, your bi kids. That was about it. And then uh, the internet. And then I figured out what was up. I would assume that's also a... A fairly common experience. That's a perfect segue. So while we're on a topic, Morgan, can you explain to me uh, what asexuality means to you? Okay. So to me, asexuality just very basically means a lack of sexual attraction to other people. That is distinct from action. I want to make clear that action and attraction are different things there. It's not the same thing as being celibate. It's not the same thing as being not romantically attracted to people. I don't know. I mean, when people ask me what asexuality is, it's a bit like they're like, what is, you know, what, how I don't understand that. How can you be experiencing that? And I'm, I'm kind of want to like, well, I mean, presumably you experience not being attracted to people every day. You know, not everyone is looking at every single person they see and going like, damn, you know, so you already know what it's like. It's just like that for me, for everyone. It's a part of my identity that I'm not ashamed of, but also it doesn't like come up all that often. You know, there's no, like, visible indicators of asexuality. Like, you can't, I mean, not that there's visible indicators necessarily of any sort of gender or sexual orientation, but I'm a woman. People look at me and see a woman. If I'm dating someone, then, I don't know, if I'm dating someone who's a guy, then they'll be like, oh, she's straight. And then there's no further questions. People place their assumptions on that. Emma, can you tell us more about NYSHN? It's a by and for Indigenous Youth Network spanning Turtle Island. So we have a couple like youth leaders down in like New Mexico and also like uh, get it asked up to communities most recently up in the Bering Strait in Alaska, right? And we say that we do everything like by and for that like we know to affect our bodies. So everything that we as indigenous youth know to affect our bodies, minds and spirits. So we do a lot of work around environmental violence and looking at connections to like sexual violence and also a lot of work around reproductive justice and also like work around supporting frontline workers around like HIV and uh, safer injection sites and harm reduction work and it continues and continues and go on and on depending on what different individual youth leaders are seeing in communities and seeing the needs in their communities. So for sure not looking to be like one big 
overmassing organization because in reality there are over 500 different indigenous nations that each have their own separate nationhood and story in Canada and that's Canada alone. So we are very much a network of youth that are spread out across different nations and different communities supporting each other to get amazing work done. We've been a part of NYSHN for quite some time now. How did you originally get involved? I mean, you were so young. So when I was eight years old, my mother got involved with a project with the Native Youth Sexual Health Network uh, called Grandmother Spirit, which is about ending elder abuse in our communities. That was my first project with the network, and basically I ran around the Native Canadian Centre of Toronto getting into every conversation and touching every piece of equipment and like asking so many questions and being such a pest and feeling so loved by my community that as I grew older and as I came to be about 11, 10, 12 years old, you know, I still was involved. They were still my community, the youth that were involved in the network. And so I still saw them. And then it got to be when I went to high school and I was just I was so devastated by the state of the sexual and reproductive justice in my high school, the health curriculum. I think devastated is really the word to use. It was devastating to me that this was the knowledge that my peers were getting to inform ourselves around, like, how do we navigate uh, institutions to take care of our bodies? Um, The curriculum was less than fantastic. And so then I really started getting into the network again, which began with like following around different youth leaders to do different workshops and having like very much a peer mentorship experience around asking questions and learning about herpes and what, and also like learning about the cervix and its dilation or when it doesn't dilate. All these different things that at 13 years old were just very cool. And at 18 years old, I also find very cool. So gradually I started to take up more and more responsibility within the network, uh, leading to my position now as an advocacy and outreach coordinator as well as a youth leader. Just before this podcast and why I'm still kind of taking my phone, uh, one of the youth in Alberta was having a bit of a crisis about a lube resource they're trying to create. And we were trying to break down the pros and cons of like oil-based lubricants versus silicone-based lubricants. And if you're ever curious, hit me up after the show <laughs> because we have done a lot of research about that in the past couple days. And it's one of the most hilarious crises you will ever have on your hands. And I uh, very much love the people that I get to work with. That's awesome. Uh, Kingsley, let's talk about the organization you're a part of. What brought you to create Ambit Gender Diversity? I uh, started doing some education work while I was at university. I went to university in New Brunswick. They had a Safer Spaces project there, but it was just very basic, basic, basic education. Like, what does the L stand for? What does the G stand for? (laughs) You know, like, let's move on a little bit. Um, And so, yeah, when I came to Victoria, I was volunteering with a youth project that no longer exists here. I was organizing some programming and a group called Project Respect came in and they do um, a lot of programming around consent and gender-based violence and they just had like a really expansive, beautiful, wonderful paradigm that they were offering and um, it was kind of funny because there were only like two youth there that night but I was like so keen about it. From then on I just kind of like kept my ear to the ground about work that was coming up with them and eventually uh, an auxiliary position came up with them. And so I was able to do a lot of youth-based education in mostly junior highs and high schools, focused on offering a framework for ending gender-based violence that wasn't putting the onus on um, those who experience violence, which is so often how education is done in schools. Um, It's, you know, 
quote unquote, how to keep yourself safe um, and very little conversation about shifting responsibility onto those who predominantly do harm and how we can be in kind of reparative relationship with one another also. That really broadened my facilitation practice, but also just, I learned so much from youth <laughs> in those moments. And I mean, it was over the course of five years for sure. I was through VSAC as well, uh, Victoria Sexual Assault Center. They got three years worth of funding to de dedicate specifically to making their services trans-inclusive, which is almost unheard of. Usually people are doing that work off the side of their desks or not at all. So a big piece of that position, which I didn't hold, but um, a colleague of mine did, was not only making internal services inclusive, whatever that means, but was doing education with other uh, nonprofits and organizations in town. Because once other people found out that VSAC had this funding, they were like, holy crap, we're working with trans folks, we're serving trans folks, like we want to be doing that better. And I have found throughout all of this that the desire is there to want to be doing better, but just um, people have no idea where to go. And so often right now, it's just kind of like a cultural freeze where people don't want to do the wrong thing. So their alternative is to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, through all of this, I was just noticing that it was mostly frontline service providers who were like had that awareness to say, yeah, I need more education and I'm going to pursue that. But like everyone else who works with human beings, that kind of initiative wasn't there. So I've kind of adapted that curriculum to be relevant to everyone else who works with human beings because the front lines are like super important and as are like every other interaction that people have. And they can be as affirming or as validating as like a healthcare interaction or whatever the case is. Like I remember paying for a parking ticket and a person used a neutral pronoun for me and I left like clicking my heels, right? So it's like, I, I really just think that this education is relevant across so many different fields, but that some people don't know it's relevant until you show them it's relevant. And so I've kind of, yeah, taken the initiative to reach out to people who I personally think that I can identify might benefit from broadening their framework for how they think about gender. Awesome. All right, so we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we'll delve into more discussion. Next up. CPV's production team has made a handy guide to the sexuality and gender identity spectrum. This is by no means a full list, but it's a great place to start. As allies, an episode topic for another day, it is your due duty to do your research. So take this guide and run with it. There is always so much more to learn. Stay tuned. The word queer has a long history with those whose gender, sexual, and romantic orientations are outside what is considered the norm, a word used to other and belittle people simply for how we exist in the world, that has since been claimed by many, brandished in acceptance of living outside society's expectations of love and self, and as a representation of our community. It is often used interchangeably with LGBTQ, or its many variations, as being so general eliminates the risk of excluding groups that the acronym poses. It is not necessarily the ideal term, given that many dislike the use of it due to its negative connotations. However, this word works as the perfect example of the difficult relationship this community has with language. Our thinking regarding sex, love, and gender is constantly changing and always subject to the context it takes place in. Nonetheless, it's important to talk about these things with the language at our disposal, even at the risk of using terminology that is one day dated or not appreciated in certain situations. People have to be able to have this discussion for the sake of understanding ourselves and those around us. 
For the sake of facilitating this discussion, here is a basic vocabulary list for a variety of terms relevant to the queer community. The definitions given here are only the most general understandings, provided in part by Community, British Columbia's Queer Resource Center, which anyone can reach out to if you want further information on the topics discussed here. It's important to note that this list is not extensive, and there is a wealth of terminology specific to a variety of identities in the world, the whole of which there is just not enough time to include here. And while this list is intended to be as inclusive as possible, this topic is extremely subjective, and your understanding of a certain term or a word as it relates to your own identity is just as valid as anything expressed here. Sexuality. The most general term available for someone who is attracted to their own gender is, of course, gay. Gay as an identity is to only experience attraction to one's own gender, but many people also choose to use the word to describe those feelings of attraction, even if that isn't their specific orientation. Gay is often used to refer specifically to men, but it is not only applicable to them. Lesbianism is slightly more specific, as its sole meaning as an identity is that of a woman who is only attracted to other women, or, again, as an adjective to describe any romantic or sexual feelings or relationships between women. Bisexual has a contested definition, as some choose to use it as an umbrella term, while others consider it a specific orientation. It means either simply anyone who does not consider themselves limited to attraction to only one gender, or as a specific kind of attraction to both men and women, more generally, masculine and feminine people. These can either be totally equal levels of attraction or preferences for one over the other. Pansexual is a word often used to express a more open orientation, only with little to no emphasis on the gender binary in the forming of relationships or attraction. Asexual is someone who does not experience sexual attraction at all, or to very minimal degrees. This is not inherently equivalent with celibacy, which is a lifestyle choice rather than an orientation. To be asexual does not necessarily exclude someone from being gay or straight, as romantic relationships of any nature are not dependent on being sexual in the first place. But many asexual people also identify as aromantic, and thus do not feel romantic attraction or seek out that kind of relationship. Gender. The two basic divisions of gender identity are cis and transgender. Cisgender individuals are those whose gender identities match the societal concepts of what fits the biological sex assigned at birth. The terminology is all a bit new and can be confusing, but a simple example is just a person born with a vagina who is most comfortable living her life as a woman. Transgender is an umbrella term for everyone whose gender identity does not meet the conventional expectations for someone with their biological sex. For some, the experience of being transgender is very much within the gender binary of male and female. In other words, trans men or trans women. This could be a person born with a penis who also is meant to live as a woman, exactly the same as the previous example, though with a very different social experience. Other gender identities lie in different areas of the spectrum. Transfeminine or transmasculine are terms used to be more inclusive for people whose gender identities lean towards one side of the spectrum, either for those who fully identify as women or men, or non-binary people who just closely identify that way. Non-binary, or alternatively, genderqueer people are those whose identities are not connected to our gender constructs or fluctuate across the spectrum. 
This is a broad term that, again, some use as their identities and others consider an umbrella that their gender lies within. For example, people that consider their identities to either contain both male and female aspects on a static level, or lean towards one side sometimes and the other on different occasions, are genderqueer. But that specific experience is also referred to as being gender fluid or bigender. This is not to be confused with being intersex, which is the term for someone whose sexual anatomy differs from medical binaries, such as having external genitalia that either has both male and female qualities, or having secondary sex characteristics not typical amongst their body types. While some intersex people do identify as existing within the trans umbrella, that is personal and not widely the case among people with these qualities. These identities can also be specific to certain societies or faiths. Among many indigenous peoples, there are those who are two-spirit, towing the line between male and female or possessing qualities from both ends of the spectrum. Though this may sound familiar to the genderqueer umbrella, only indigenous people can be two-spirit, as it is as much an element of their culture as it is a gender identity. The last terms to consider, which come up often in discussions among the queer community, are hetero and cisnormative. To put it simply, these are the ideas propagated in most societies that being a cisgender heterosexual is what's normal and ideal, and that everyone who does not fit these labels is an outlier. Though extensive and harmful, the message spread by these ideas is nothing more than fiction. In the diversity of the human race, no one's experience with love, sex, or their own identities are the same. The words we've just discussed are representative of that, the many ways in which people exist in this world. This vocabulary is not intended to confuse or exclude, but simply to be used as a set of tools to help people understand and grow comfortable with their own identities and experiences. I want to break free. Break free from boring ice cream with cold comfort. Cold Comfort is a small, independent ice cream company right here in Victoria, with over 400 different handcrafted ice cream flavors inspired by everything from local fruit to local beer. Curiously flavored and locally made, they've been doing whatever the hell they feel like since 2010. Head on down and treat your taste buds today. Check them out at www.coldcomfort.ca. Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. I'm here with Kingsley Strudwick, Emma Antoine, and Morgan Henderson. And we're talking about the wide world of gender identity and sexuality. Before the break, we talked a bit about the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, an organization that you, Emma, work closely with. There are quite a few sexual health associations and authorities on the island, but NYSHN is different because they focus on sexual health activism for Indigenous youth. So, Emma, can you go into detail about NYSHN's work? A lot of the work that we do is around uh, reclaiming and rediscovering our ways of being that were prior to colonization, but also looking at how our two-spirit youth existing now in spaces and what are our needs now. In terms of how we're different, I think we do a lot of work with uh, mainstream, like I'd say like settler LGBTQ institutions around how to make their spaces more accessible to two-spirit, like queer indigenous youth. And we also do a lot of work with indigenous service providers 
uh, on how to make their spaces more accessible to queer indigenous youth. So especially, I guess, for queer youth, queer indigenous youth, we often, when we're looking at the barriers that queer indigenous youth face to accessing services, we uh, hear it from mainstream LGBTQ plus service providers who say, we don't know how to uh, effectively provide these services for indigenous youth because we're hearing that we're harming them. And we also get youth who say, oh my gosh, like this super fucked up thing happened when I went to go see this doctor who was totally fucking racist. Like, I can't believe it. Or fat phobic or et cetera, et cetera. And now I can't access top surgery. Sometimes there's reputation, like, oh, you can't go see that health service provider because we keep each other safe and we know when something's not safe. But we also know that sometimes accessing services in our own communities meant for indigenous youth can be hard too for queer indigenous youth because colonization fucking sucks and colonial violence is an ongoing thing that has affected our communities in the way that we can talk about our bodies. While we're doing all of that, we are trying to prioritize the queer indigenous youth in our lives and in our network and in our communities and in our families. So we are simultaneously creating the resources. We're always trying to create those spaces because it's exhausting. We know as queer indigenous youth, because that is what makes up much of our network, is trans and queer indigenous youth. As trans and queer indigenous youth, we know that it is exhausting always having to create the spaces for yourself to exist in, and always having to create spaces for your community to exist in. Because the reality is, is that when you can't access, say, the GSA at your high school, because it's all like white settlers who maybe have a very different understanding of the world than you do, that you then have to create the space for yourself. And we know that as a queer kid on the res, when sometimes like no one's done the work of creating all gendered washrooms, you have to create that space for yourself as well. And that's exhausting. And we are tired of losing kids who are too tired to create spaces for themselves to exist in. So I think a lot of the work that we do is around supporting youth in their communities to uh, not burn out so young and to create the spaces that they need to see. So around uh, reproductive justice, for sure. We do a lot around like queerids and, uh, <laughs> and different support for youth to get uh, talk about the junk um, and for communities to talk about each other's junk and what do we need to do around that um, to take care of each other. Totally. NYSHN is doing some super cool work. Well, actually, let's talk about those conversations a bit. So this, this is an open question for everyone. Uh, but how do you approach conversations about gender and sexuality in your community? This can either be about your work at NYSHN or Kingsley for Ambit Gender or just, you know, your general day-to-day -day life. It depends on the room that I'm in. I have found, so far at least, like there are certain trainings where I can locate myself as trans 12 times in a workshop and by the end of it, people still don't get that I'm trans or assume that when I say that, that I'm a trans woman because they perceive me to be what they perceive as like a quote unquote male body, but that I'm feminine in some ways. And the only way they can make those two things jive is to be like, oh, you're trans feminine, which is not my experience. Granted, very often, this is the first conversation that someone is ever having about these concepts. And so I also truly believe that like half of what I'm doing with people is being in the room with them. It's like partly about curriculum and it's partly about just like, hey, I'm trans, I'm here, we're talking, it's okay, we're all okay. I also 
am a white dude and am listened to in different ways based on, yeah, how people read me. And so there are certain workshops where I end up placing myself as such like halfway through a workshop because I people will listen to me differently for the first 60 minutes before I place myself as trans. They just think I'm like a well-meaning cis guy <laughs> who's like really passionate about trans stuff and like coming in to offer them education, um, which like those people exist too. But I just, I find it really interesting that people's first assumption isn't that I'm trans. Their first assumption is that I'm, yeah, like a well-meaning cis dude. And there are certain moments where I use my positionality to be listened to strategically. And for example, relating this not necessarily to trainings, but in my personal life, like people will say some really messed up stuff about trans people in my presence with the assumption that I'm not. And so in those moments, I don't actually use my position, my like lived experience as a trans person to advocate in those moments. I use the fact that I'm read in the way that I'm read. It's also like a very much a felt sense of who can handle this information that I'm about to share. And very often, like I've come out in interviews and not because people have asked, right? Like someone in an interview when I was about to work at a grocery store was like, tell me something difficult you've done in your life and why you're proud of it. I'm like, oh no, I'm alive. And like <laughs> went on this thing about transness and then she cried. <laughs> And was like, you're so brave. And I was like, oh, this is so weird. But, you know, it's like, it, I'm, I am fairly open about it in most situations, unless it's strategic for me not to be open about it or unsafe for me to be open about it. And usually it is like an intuitive sense of what people can handle. And that when I'm coming in for a training, there is a position of power there as well. Like they're the learners and I'm the educators. In some ways, like I think everybody is teaching everyone in those moments, but also if you've hired me to come in, there is a power differential there. And so people in that way will listen to me differently than if I'm, if I was a volunteer even, or if I was read as more femme or whatever the case is. So. Yeah. So, Morgan, do you find that your sexual orientation comes up in your work or personal life? In terms of my personal life, it does come up occasionally because my friends know that it's not something that I'm ashamed or like trying to hide. The other time that it comes up is if people who know about it ask about my relationships, because people do get curious. I am frequently the only ace person that many of my friends know, and so they're just sort of curious about what that's like. So I have had many a late night uh, party, you know, stoop conversation at 2 a.m. where someone says, listen, I don't mean to be offensive, but I just, can you explain this to me, please? I don't know what's happening. So, yeah. Anything to add, Emma? Right. Hmm. So I think as Kingsley was speaking to, it really does depend on context. And I think Morgan spoke to that as well. I think work and life often can be very different, but then also for me, work is hopefully always working in indigenous communities. That is what we try to prioritize as indigenous communities and in our families and relationships over settler experiences. I think one thing we talk about and we try to talk about when we debrief and we try to talk about in terms of protecting ourselves as like uh, trans or queer two-spirit indigenous youth who are doing this kind of work in community is um, not speaking from personal experience because sometimes it can just be really crushing when the audience isn't listening to you, right? Especially when you're just starting out, it can be really difficult when you're going into a workshop and all you can share is your personal story and uh, people can't hold it, right? So we also, in, in like Anishinaabe practices, we have a, or I have a teaching I was given to by an Anishinaabe knowledge keeper around taking care of our stories and uh, looking at who can really hold and take care of our stories before we share them. What about with your work at NYSHN? 
I think there's a number of strategies that can be used when you are facing sexism or facing, as just as when you're facing any type of discrimination in a situation where you maybe don't have a lot of power. And for sure, like, one of them is to be, like, kind of inquisitive around, like, hmm, so, like, you seem like you're really uncomfortable right now. Like, did you want to speak more to that? Um, and there are some other ones. One is just ignoring it. It's kind of my favorite one that I'm still learning how to do. That, like, one of my uh, uh, cousins, I guess, is still trying to teach me around um, just ignoring it when someone's being very passive-aggressive or when someone's... Uh, uh, not being clear and that eventually they'll probably be a more uh, clear speaker. How do you approach your conversations about gender and identity and sexuality when people don't understand your identity or other people's for that matter? What barriers do you have to overcome? I mean, I guess, so barriers to conversation about asexuality generally start with, wait, what? What's that? Sorry, what? I've never heard it. you're making that one up it's like well no um actually so the yeah no that's the first one because when I said earlier that um I try to let other people's questions lead the conversation when it comes to me and my my asexuality that comes with the caveat of first of all I have to do the the 101 this is what asexuality is it's different from attraction it's different from action it's like yada 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 I'm not a sea sponge or whatever it is that terrible joke that people throw out every now and again so just a general lack of information is barrier number one another stumbling block that I've had with people who do care about me and are actively trying to be sensitive is that they are worried that I will never be happy because generally a lot of people like the majority of people do enjoy having sex and sex like experience sexual attraction and for most people that tends to be a large part of relationships which for the most part bring many people a lot of joy and comfort and satisfaction in their life and so when they know that that is not a part of my experience if they care about me they think like oh my god you're gonna be alone forever you're just gonna like cry in a sad apartment with like 10 cats i don't see how you could live any other way (laughs) and i'm over here with my like one temporary cat thank you very much and my you know almost maybe girlfriend if I maybe talk about that someday like I'm doing just fine and so having to sort of calm people down about my general well-being in the middle of navigating a difficult conversation is also a challenge (laughs) cool thank you Emma what about you sweet uh the sweet, sweet sting of colonial violence. Um, so colonization is happening. Don't know that I totally want to do the colonialism 101 thing right now. You can Google it. There's lots of really great things on Google. Some not so great things too. But in terms of looking at how uh, colonization affects us as Indigenous youth, as queer Indigenous youth, we don't get to be... Uh, partial beings, right, is the one teaching I was very, I received from a Haudenosaunee elders. We're not partial beings, we are full beings, which uh, kind of results in being like we are indigenous and feeling our connections to the land and feeling our responsibilities to the land and feeling our responsibilities to each other. We are responsible to each other as a community. We are responsible to our elders and to our young ones and to our parents and to our aunties and we are responsible to ourselves and our bodies and our spirits and our connection to our spirits and for maintaining that connection there's a lot of responsibility that ends up going down so looking at how colonialism we can also call those responsibilities relationships looking at how colonialism has affected those relationships and responsibilities is uh 
a difficult, it's a tricky one. I think some like kind of straightforward ways, I guess, would be around gender and pronouns. So speaking as an Anishinaabe person, Anishinaabe Moen, the language of the Anishinaabe folks, actually has no gendered pronouns. We have no concept of he or she. This was very alarming to uh, Jaganash, he, the white people when they came, was very alarming and it resulted in a lot of colonial violence against two-spirit people historically and currently as well. But also in terms of looking at our communities, we like it meant that with English, with the imposition of English and with the imposition by that, that is a process that often, often happened by having our children taken away from us and having English imposed upon our worldviews. So we look at now, what does it mean when we speak in English to each other? It's a completely different world frame. Now all of a sudden you have these binaries in place that just don't exist in our language. And then you remember that there are 500 different nations uh, throughout uh, Thailand, and then there's way more, right? And those all often have their own complex understanding of uh, how gender works and how sexuality can work and uh, what roles, air quotes here, gender diverse people could have in nations because colonialism did have the impact of now people will say, oh, you know, taking care of water is women's work and taking care of the fire is men's work. And we say, well, hmm, if we don't have any pronouns and we actually don't look at binaries in our worldview, where did that come from? Sounds like colonialism. Um, so how do we dismantle that? How is another way to look at that? It's not new. We've been doing it for thousands of years. Let's talk about that. I think that's very much inherently a two-spirit gift and a gift that a lot of our trans youth embody. Whether it always feels like a choice that you have to create the spaces to live in, I know sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it feels like the worst burden of all. But I've come to be able to view it as a gift and hopefully something that we can support each other to do. We can support each other to create those spaces so it's not such an exhausting experience, but instead a kind of wonderful thing. We're not yet at that point, but we're getting there. Awesome. Kingsley, do you notice any barriers when talking about gender? Yeah, people can find it very destabilizing when this binary of gender is a pillar which has constructed their life. And so when offering alternative paradigms through which to see the world, it, it pulls the rug out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's like, oh, an alternative, but what does that mean for me? And does that mean that like I'm not a man anymore or something? You know, like people just are clinging to whatever their identity is and saying, well, I need this thing. This is very central to who I am. So we need to main, like, again, quotes, like maintain the order, right? This is for social order. And I'll just echo some of the thoughts that Emma put out as well. But the biggest reactions that I've gotten in terms of people's defensiveness is um, around talking about the um, colonial roots of the gender binary. And that's a thread that is carried through much of the education that I've had the privilege of participating in but very often people have the question of like why is it like this and when I offer the suggestion that you know in our current context there were and are so many alternative ways of knowing and like rooted <laughs> ways of knowing that were essentially attempted erasure and sometimes erasure uh, through colonial practices and genocidal practices in residential schools and people don't like that <laughs> people don't like to hear that right and it's very hard to 
like draw those parallels i think especially people like to learn in like simplistic siloed ways so like oh we're here to talk about gender diversity let's just deal with the gender thing but it's impossible to address destabilizing the gender binary if we don't talk about where that came from in the first place and how it's connected to ableism and fat phobia and all of the things classism racism all of like everything is all together all at once and so yeah i totally want to talk about the trans experience and what it is to be non-binary in the world and in order to do that we have to address all the things at the same time great points everyone all right so we're gonna take a little break next up Poetry by Ash Haig. Hi, my name is Ash Haig. So I'm queer and I'm trans feminine. I'm also a uh, white settler living on the stolen and unceded lands of the Lekwungen and Wasanich people, which is super important to acknowledge when talking about like gender identity and sexuality and these different things. The first one's called Silencing the Demons, and it's talking about kind of fighting back against like all these internalized ideas I've had about uh, gender and about like, you know, what it means to be trans feminine and like, like pushing back against a society that has so many like binary ideas about gender. Fuck all the limited assumptions and labels that encourage you to view this body as male because I am a badass trans-feminine tomboy. No, I am not your stereotypical trans princess, and I do not exist to meet your toxic standards, so confident in my femininity and expression. But there is always a voice that whispers to me, and it claims that my feminine is not authentic, so overcome with internalized hatred and doubt. So when I tell people to go and fuck themselves for trying to pigeonhole me to false conventions, sometimes I wonder who needs to hear that most. The next poem I'm going to read is kind of about like my feelings of dysphoria and like my struggle coming to terms with accepting like my body and accepting living in my body and yeah. So it's called Desolate Lands. Invasive vines coiling around me, bursting from the earth that is my own flesh. A deep and hollow rumble, the vibration in my chest, that feels like an earthquake rather than my own voice. A tumultuous flood, rushing water over barren soil, intrusive thoughts and emotions, the deluge of my own uncertainty. A prisoner in my own vessel, exiled to these desolate lands, a constant struggle to feel at home in the caverns of my own soul. This might all sound hopeless, but our eyes tell a different story of a limitless and expansive galaxy that is our own to explore. So yeah, the whole start of this poem starts off really kind of hopeless sounding and very depressing, but there's also that understanding that like gender is expansive um, and like it's not something that we can just impose on people and that like it's something that like we should have the, the freedom to explore on our own terms. I also, I wrote a small kind of reflection on this poem. It's called A Prisoner in My Own Vessel. I've been thinking a lot about a line I wrote in a poem called Desolate Lands, where I explain that sometimes I view myself 
As a prisoner in my own vessel, I wanted to deconstruct what emotions and thoughts I was processing in that moment. I was struggling with feelings about dysphoria and discomfort with my biological existence, though before I delve into the nuance of trans issues and re the relationships we have with our bodies, I want to explain more about the methods I use when I write poetry. To me, the creation of authentic and visceral emotion in my writing requires me to allow my various thoughts to travel through me and my writing instrument to fill the page untethered with doubt for what I'm feeling in that precise moment. This means that I'll often return to something I've written in the past and learn that my thoughts and feelings on the topic have dramatically changed. This is the reason that writing is so cathartic to me, because it helps me learn about who I am as a person, deconstruct complicated thoughts, and it's a catalyst for me to process emotion and trauma. Writing is therefore a healing activity that allows me to move forward and understand my experiences. So I think we've all heard it before, the overtly common and limited narrative that suggests that all trans people feel trapped in their own bodies, or as like prisoners in their own vessels as I described in Desolate Lands no more than, well, when this article was written a day after I wrote the poem Desolate Lands. I understand that there are many trans people who might feel this way about their bodies, and that's valid and real. Uh, in fact, I know that this is a feeling I sometimes have about my own body that comes from dysphoria, hence the inclusion of the line in my recent poem, and I'm not here to debate the reality of those experiences, quite the opposite. However, I do want to emphasize that I don't always feel this way about my body, and that many trans people feel totally comfortable in their own bodies, and that doesn't make them any less authentic. There's a quote from Alok Vidmenon, uh, who explains that they were not born in the wrong body, they were born in the wrong world. This quote has always resonated with me as I've tried to come to understand my feelings. Towards my body, Alok draws attention to a toxic gender status quo and encourages us to move beyond a quote, Western colonial system that's invested in categorizing everything about us. I've realized since writing Desolate Lands that I don't necessarily feel like a prisoner in my own vessel, but rather lost in an ocean of stereotypes and false assumptions about my body and how this supposedly defines who I am or how I traverse the world. There is no monolithic trans narrative, and we all have unique relationships with our bodies. Uh, I agree with Janet Mock when she explains that the trapped in the wrong body narrative can inevitably function to, quote, place us in the role of victim, and to those who take mainstream media depictions as truth, we are seen as a human to be pitied because we are someone who needs to be saved rather than rather than a self-determined human with agency and choice and the ability to define who we are in this society and who we will become in spite of it and I think that's really powerful yeah that was just a little bit of a, a self-reflection that I had after writing Desolate Lance and realizing that I didn't like the fact that I use the term like a prisoner in my own vessel welcome back to taking up space I'm your host and Bernice Thomas I'm here with Kingsley Strudwick Emma Antoine and Morgan Henderson, and we're talking about the wide world of gender identity and sexuality. Looking at your work or your communities and the education and knowledge of everything that's happening right now and 10 years down the line and 10 years in the future and all of this, what do you think is missing for people in the communities that you work in or are in or a part of, especially in relation to those with intersectional experiences? So there are some really great uh, resources that exist for trans youth general, blanket term, but don't always resonate with trans indigenous youth as like being relevant to our experiences. And there are some pretty great uh, resources out there for indigenous youth in general, blanket term, but that don't always resonate with uh, trans youth 
trans and indigenous youth as relevant to our experiences. So we are beginning the process of creating like a resource slash scene type thing um, to fill that void because we are seeing the need for it. For sure, also looking at like, you can't talk about substance using in a community if you're not also gonna look at the paper mill that's upstream. You know, you can't ignore environmental violence from our conversations around our bodies just like you can't ignore colonialism as an impact on our communities and you can't ignore the disconnection from our languages and ceremony in terms of talking about feeling disconnected from your ovaries and your uterus, right? And uh, we don't want to talk about like dysphoria and gender dysphoria as if it's separate from trauma that we experience as like mixed race indigenous youth. So there's lots of different conversations that we have to have in order to acknowledge ourselves and be seen as full people and as a full spirit who's occupying a full body. And to be able to claim that body is something that's like, <sighs> uh, if we can get there in 10 years, uh, that'd be, that's pretty great. Again, asexuality is pretty invisible unless you're like, you got the little button on Pride Day, you got the little face paint going on. It's invisible both like to look at physically and then also sort of to think about and to experience. It doesn't come up that often, which means for someone, for like a little kid like me who's like just waiting to have a crush on someone, because like that, mm. right? Everyone else is doing that. Surely I'll be doing that like at some point, any day now, any year now, maybe just not knowing what was going on there. So just more understanding and just having asexuality be like in conversations that people can hear about and they can recognize themselves in is something that I would have really appreciated and would really appreciate to see going forward. Because I, although I don't know of anyone who has spoken to me about that and then gone, oh my God, that's me. Like, hey, maybe someday, you know? Yeah, I want to bounce off an idea that you just mentioned also in terms of this invisibility. And I hear this, yeah, in queer community around like femme invisibility. And it's like, not that you're invisible, but it's that people don't see you. And I long for the day where that conversation kind of shifts, where it's like, not that people are invisible, but it's that like, if people weren't constantly assuming that I was cis, then I wouldn't be invisible as a trans person. Or if people weren't constantly assuming that that person over there is a straight woman, then there would like, femme invisibility wouldn't be a thing or you know what I mean? So I guess, yeah, long game, a huge part of the conversations that I have with people are just about like, stopping those assumptions as they happen. So whether it's oh, people assume that someone with this body part, that has meaning. That means that you will be sexual in this way or that you will have a gender in this way. Um, and it just kind of cascades down the waterfall very quickly. And I'm just kind of throwing a wrench into the machinery and saying like, what if having a penis doesn't have meaning? <laughs> Aside from the meaning that the person who has the penis gives it, right? Or similarly, like what if having a vulva doesn't have a meaning other than the, the meaning that someone gives it themselves? My sense is that we're kind of at a cultural freeze moment and that people are like afraid to do anything for fear of making a mistake because let's get real, like the left isn't super forgiving um, when mistakes are made. And so that can like people on all sides of a political spectrum can be kind of iced out of community when mistakes are made, however small or large those may be. And so my interest is in like, how can we engage more people in being bridges between worlds that currently seem disconnected? Can I speak back to something yes, that King Clue was saying? Um, so King Clue was speaking to, like, this concept that 
just because someone has a penis doesn't mean that everybody else has to assign a meaning to it that they don't assign, right? That they don't uh, choose. And you were saying that's maybe like a relatively new way of looking at things. And I would say that it's also very similar to a very relatively old way of looking at things in terms of like, um, so Anishinaabe Moen, like uh, the language of my people, it's very action-based. We don't necessarily look at the knee and say it's called a knee. We look at the knee and say, oh, well, what does it do? How is it useful? Is your knee cold? Is your knee hot? Is your knee sick? Does it ache? Does it tingle? Like, do you need help with your knee? Like, instead of like looking at it as a word, but looking at everything kind of in more like action-based. So in terms of talking about language, talking about like, okay, so a person has a uterus and not only do they have a uterus, but also like there are some traditional understandings that maybe that person didn't assign to themselves that maybe we still had. That doesn't mean that there's not like a consent aspect there. But also that just because you had that uterus doesn't mean that you were expected to like use it in any particular way. And that actually we had specific medicines for contraception and also like different knowledges around like how to prevent pregnancy and how to uh, abort or end or terminate a pregnancy. Right. So in terms of looking at like our cultural understandings of complexifying some things to be like, well, actually, it wasn't our understanding that just because you came into this world with a uterus, you were expected to use it in some particular way. It's not our cultural understanding that just because you came into this world with like a vulva, you are expected to like fall into these specific roles, but instead that there are teachings to come down and you can take up the ones that are useful to you and you take up the ones that are healing to your community and you take up what's healing to you and what's healing to your relatives and what's healing to your relations and, you know, you can leave the rest for someone else to take up. So now that we've explored what's missing in queer communities, can you tell me ways you think the queer communities can go about bridging those gaps and actually making intersectional accessible spaces? Probably more conversations. Uh, I think we definitely have like a long history of oral storytelling and just also like a uh, long history of just talking about things and maybe a shorter history of like kitchen tables so especially as a peer-based network we look at ways where we cannot be like lecturing like this is the way that things are going to go and as an indigenous network my teachings as an Anishinaabe person are not in line with saying this is the way things are going to go but instead looking at having conversations and honoring what uh, all these different youth are going to bring to the table as we were asked to come into their spaces and have conversations and honoring that they're going to have like different understandings of their bodies that are valid and not mine to stomp all over or invalidate so we look at different ways that we can bring into having these conversations into starting conversations and just sharing information um, I have the same answer as Emma, except less cool and shorter. Because um, <laughs> uh, I, I come back again to information, not just for my identity, but for all identities, because it's very difficult to respect and accept something if you don't understand it. And you cannot understand something without like learning about it, of course. And the best way to learn about something is to ask someone who is experiencing whatever that thing happens to be. So in whatever cultural context is appropriate, because you're not going to have honest conversations, you're not going to get honest information if the person that you're asking doesn't feel comfortable. 
But then I also want to pull in some of Kingsley's points from earlier that the biggest barrier is defensiveness because again you can't have conversations you can't learn if you're preoccupied with half your mind the whole time with making sure that you look okay making sure that you're asking you know the the, the right questions so I mean I guess less less ego and less defensiveness going into these conversations is important and also trying to balance acceptance that other people are going to make mistakes when they are talking about things that they don't know about and they don't have the right terminology maybe to talk about you or to talk about your experiences and then also balancing not having those conversations cause you harm as the person who is being asked about that i don't know where that balance is obviously that's a bigger that's a bigger <laughs> question than i have an answer to um yeah a willingness to seek knowledge out so often people don't know what they don't know and all of that but if you can like identify a gap in your own knowledge then being willing to take that initiative and like for sure if you have you know you're in good relationship with someone being able to ask those questions of them that's great and if they tell you to go google it like don't take that personal and go google it because that's them like taking care of themselves and not taking on that labor that's ultimately like not theirs to do and then yeah this aspect of humility as well and it's interesting to be in like a self-identified progressive city because there is so much erasure of struggle in that case then and people let's say you know organization x is supposed to be or yeah self-identifies as progressive but then they're then like not allowed to be honest about the fact that they have learning to do or not allowed to say hey we actually really messed up and like here's how we messed up and let's deal with that it has to be like nope we're progressive we didn't mess it up nope this is why we didn't here's the five reasons we didn't and (laughs) because we're progressive is all one through five right so but if you have a willingness to be led by those who are maybe marginalized or those who have lived experience with whatever the thing is yeah the, the question is really interesting to me because it's like what do marginalized people need <laughs> well we're we'll all need something different right um and so it's like about asking individuals and not making these kind of like swath statements about what this community needs or that community needs but if you're working with a person who experiences various marginalities then like being curious about what that person needs and not assuming that the marginality will mean that they will have various needs etc the answer is usually sleep (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally what does a marginalized person need sleep yeah (laughs) amazing So that concludes our conversation for this episode. Thank you so much to Emma, Morgan, and Kingsley for coming in to speak with us today. If you want to learn more about NYSHN and the work that Emma does, visit www.nativeyouthsexualhealth.com. To learn more about Kingsley's organization, please visit www.ambitgenderdiversity.com. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Taking Up Space. Rate us, leave us a comment, or review the show at www.cfubpodcast.com or wherever else you get your podcast. This program was produced by myself, Alba Clevenger, Rachel Gardner, Natalie Zibik, Megan Warren, Noah Sliman, and Max Collins. Our theme music is composed by Arcade Palette. This episode was created by CFUB's production team. If you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to cfuv.ca to learn more. Taking up space, would it be possible without the generous support of our friends at Cold Comfort and the Community Radio Fund of Canada? I'm Anne-Bernice Thomas. This is Taking Up Space, and we'll catch you next time. Oh.
Island Sexual Health is a non-profit society. It provides sexual wellness services in Greater Victoria and on Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands. When it was founded in 1969, Island Sexual Health was part of Planned Parenthood, but it's been run independently since 1986. In its annual report from last year, Island Sexual Health wrote that it envisions a diverse community that celebrates healthy sexuality throughout life. The work at Island Sexual Health breaks into two main categories. First, there are clinical services. These include pelvic and genital exams, STI testing and management, birth control and contraceptive provision, IUD insertion, and pregnancy testing and decision-making support. Also, they give out free condoms and lube. The second category of the work done at Island Sexual Health is education. In its educational programming at schools and in the community, Island Sexual Health promotes positive sexuality and works to prevent negative outcomes like sexual exploitation and unexpected pregnancies. More than 24,000 clients visited clinic locations last year, and there were over 13,000 people who participated in Island Sexual Health educational workshops. In both types of its services, Island Sexual Health aims to empower its clients to make choices that will lead to sexual well-being, to be inclusive, and to celebrate diverse sexual expressions. In the last couple of years, Island Sexual Health has expanded its services by breaking into the retail world. Their storefront, Frisky Business, offers products that aim to please, including vibrators, anal toys, lubricants, and lots more. As part of their mandate to promote sexual well-being, Island Sexual Health features lots of helpful resources on sexuality and sexual identity. The Society offers a monthly workshop called Sexuality Salon to help participants learn, share, and dig deep into their own experiences. Another workshop series, called Man Made, offers youths the chance to confront discrimination based on gender, sexuality, culture, or ability, and to consider their own relationships and self-expression. The Island Sexual Health website gives a fascinating breakdown of sexuality across the human lifespan. Its Identities and Orientations page has a helpful FAQ section that links readers to an incredible range of organizations that promote diversity and healthy sexuality. Another top-notch resource on the website is a glossary of terms to help establish positive conversations around diversity in gender and sexuality. While you're on their website, you should also check out the Sexuality blog, which lists upcoming events, and hosts articles on topics like how to be a sex-positive parent and ally, and recommendations for books on sexual identity. Island Sexual Health works with a youth committee, which helps to steer the organization and to stay current on the best ways to support young people. Youths between the ages of 15 and 25 participate by attending meetings, being a part of community events like Pride, and making educational videos. Island Sexual Health has four locations. The main clinic is at Quadra and Mackenzie, 
and that's where you'll find the Frisky Business storefront. The three additional clinics are at the Camosun Lansdowne campus, in Royal Bay, and on Sayot Nation territory. You can visit their website at www.islandsexualhealth.org to get more information on booking clinic appointments, upcoming workshops, and volunteer opportunities. Cold Comfort is an ice cream store with a conscience. Crafted by ethically paid employees using local, organic, fair trade, and natural ingredients, Cold Comfort offers high-quality, guilt-free ice cream. Ice cream is for everyone. They make dairy-free, vegan, and sugar-free options, as well as gluten-free ice cream sandwiches. Now that's some ice cream I can get behind. Find out more at www.coldcomfort.ca.